I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about books about music. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Today's guest is a broadcaster and DJ who grew up in Hounslow, West London, in a musical family. After university, she worked behind the counter at Alice John's record shop, fantastic shop, in Portobello in London, then began her own radio show, Questing, on NTS Radio. She now hosts the NTS Breakfast Show on Thursdays and Fridays and makes brilliant documentaries. I came across our guest for the first time listening to her four-part series, My Albion, on Radio 4, which is still up on iPlayer. It remains genuinely one of the best explorations ever about notions of belonging to the land or one's country or countries, as well as a great exploration of the status and symbols of folk cultures in Britain and beyond. She also writes. Her work has appeared in Resident Advisor and the brilliant psychedelic fanzine Weird Walk. Um, And I found her essay in the recently published Sinead Gleeson and Kim Gordon edited anthology, This Woman's Work, really, really powerful. It told us the story of a cassette tape she has featuring her mother, Amy, singing and about her subsequent diagnosis of schizophrenia and how music holds us and shapes us. I'm really hoping to read um, Zakia's first book of hers whenever she would like to write it. <laughs> I'm very pleased to welcome Zakia Sewell to the podcast. Hey, Zakia, how are you today and where are you? Oh, hi, Jude. I'm good. I'm, I'm a bit swollen. I just had my wisdom tooth taken out, but otherwise, well. <laughs> Thank you for doing this today. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. A pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm I'm at my at my home in Stoke Newington in London. Now, you've had a busy summer. I know. I saw you at um, Kite Festival. You interviewed me and you interviewed Bill Brewston, Frank Broughton. Um, you know, you've been doing DJ gigs at festivals. Um, I wanted to know, you know, what part books have played in your life this summer? You know, do you read on the go? Kind of obviously you're reading to do the interviews as well. Yeah, it's been, it's actually been really nice. I found that through the pandemic or and, and sort of afterwards, I felt like my mind was so full of, 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 of uh, well, I'm not sure what really, but my mind was <laughs> so full. I found it very difficult to read. I, fe- I felt saturated and I felt quite, um, unable to take in new information perhaps it was the sorts of things I was trying to read I guess I've been very much in a non-fiction phase recently and maybe um, fiction would have been the thing that would have helped but there's recently been a shift perhaps um, sort of healing slowly from the sort of from the from the ripples of the pandemic finally I, I, I find myself with some brain space and the ability to really take information in in that in that way so it's been lovely reconnecting with with reading over the past few months um and yeah um, and particularly reading around the subject of Albion and has been has been really really fascinating how would you describe the music um you've been playing at your DJ set so they're very different in different places or do you have a Zakia 
you know, sets thing that you want to take and <laughs> introduce to everybody? I feel like the the spectrum of what I play can be quite chaotic just because I've got, I sort of play in such different spaces. So, you know, on, on, on my original radio show, Questing, I, it was a lot more sort of deep and meditative music and a lot of like strange folk recordings from around the world. I guess it was a bit more of a deep dive with the radio, with the breakfast show it's a little bit more like you've got to get people pepped up in the morning. So it's kind of a bit more soulful and, and sort of uplifting. Um, but uh, yeah, on, on in my DJ gigs, I guess I play a lot of music influenced, um, a lot of music from the Af- African diaspora, whether that be from the Caribbean, whether it's Latin music, um, whether it's, you know, house and broken beat and things like that, or disco. A lot of it's quite, um sort of backward looking I often play a lot of music from the past I've recently gotten really into reggaeton I love syncopation I love anything that's kind of interesting rhythmically um but then you know the other day I played a gig at the British Museum um as part of their programming around their recent Stonehenge exhibition where I actually managed to slip in some bardcore I don't know if you know what bardcore no, is it's like bardcore? <laughs> they're sort of like medieval medieval reimaginings of like hip-hop and pop songs and r&b songs so it's kind of like there's one guy in particular called beadle the bardcore who does all these like medieval remixes of, oh, wow. of naughty's r&b tracks so i managed to slip some of that in so it's a real it's a real mixture oh god i've got to listen to that stuff after we finish <laughs> dig that out of soundcloud or wherever um I've already mentioned My Albion, which was so brilliant. Can you describe um, what that series was to listeners who might have just heard about it for the first time? Yeah, um, so My Albion was a a four-part Radio 4 series that I made um, with the incredible Alan Hall of Falling Tree Productions uh, back in 2020. And it really, it came from the germ of an idea, which was um, sort of questioning my relationship to folk music, something that I've always loved, but always sort of questioned why and always sort of wondered whether I should and what that, what this, that sort of, that music really has to do with me um, as a, you know, as a mixed race woman in, you know, living in London. Um, That, that idea sort of came back around in 2020 during the time a time of real kind of inner in inward looking and questioning about race after or race and identity and belonging um after the murder of George Floyd. And my Albion was a sort of combination of those two things. It was a sort of exploration of of Britishness, of you know what it means to be uh, from this place. Um, it was a sort of personal journey of discovery and also a kind of exploration of folk culture and uh, I guess a search for alternative symbols, alternative stories of Britishness, perhaps that, that I, um, ones that I feel a bit more at one with um, than some of the sort of more, the stories and the symbols that are kind of enmeshed with histories of colonialism and enslavement so yeah it was a kind of a mixture of all those things a kind of quest like a search for a a way into feeling a sense of connection to Britain through an exploration of folk culture and music and our connection to the land and various other things now let's get to the main meat of the, the podcast I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask every songbook guest before we launch into the book Okay, so who was the very first musical artist or act that you loved? 
It's a really difficult question. You have to sort of cast your mind back and remember, remember those early early experiences with music. And I think when we're really young, we're not necessarily thinking in terms of artists. We're thinking in terms of mm, songs and and or sounds that we don't necessarily know where they come from. But what came to mind was um, my earliest sort of musical love was a cassette that one of my dad's friends had made for me when I was a kid and it was a it was a kind of mixtape and it was sort of a mixture of Disney songs like Drip Drip Drop Little April Shower that's one in particular that I remember being on there and then sort of 60s girl groups like Martha and the Vandellas and the Supremes and stuff like that and they sort of I remember just listening to this tape I had a little you know tape player in my bedroom and listening to this cassette and the sort of world that it conjured was quite uncanny in that it was sort of these sort of strange um, sounds sort of fused together. Um, and so uh, although I can't say my f- the first artist that I loved was, uh, you know, Diana Ross, I think it was that that tape in particular um, was it was the first time that I had something of my own, my own musical world that I used to kind of commune mm. with. Um, so I think I think it would have to be that 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 tape and the artists on that tape oh I love that um who was the first writer on music that you loved again this is a difficult one and I, I guess what came to mind for me was you know the first real kind of music writing I, that I encountered or that I um engaged with in any in any way was at university um was I was studying English literature but in my final year and for my dissertation I was looking a lot into sort of jazz poetry and I started writing I started reading uh, work by people like Ted Jones, Amiri Baraka who at that time was calling himself Leroy Jones um, and uh, a poet named Bob Kaufman who were all um, black poets sort of writing in and around the beat tradition but also simultaneously sort of writing writing jazz um, whether that be writing about jazz or trying to write poetry in a kind of jazz form and I think they weren't writing about it journalistically but they I guess that was the first time that I really um, encountered engaged with music that was with with writing um, that was sort of very closely connected or um, expressive of music. And what was the first music book that you loved? Music writing has always been secondary to me to a love of to, to a love of the music, and it's only something that I, I've sort of delved into as I've as I've gotten a bit older, or perhaps worked worked on documentaries or things like mm. that where I've needed that extra context. So you're somebody who's come into reading music writing, you know, after the fact in a way. You you know you didn't grow up on, I guess you're in your late twenties. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. You, you know, you're not, you know, when you're my age, you know, when you're in your mid 40s, you grew up on the, you know, weekly music papers and the going to the shops and getting this stuff. You know, music writing is everywhere online now. It's, that's how it's accessible. Yeah, definitely. They weren't like particular magazines or, yeah, or journalists that I, that I kind of, that I've eagerly followed or anything like that. I think it's just a, diff- a slightly different way of consuming music and the information around it yeah. I think yeah nowadays. then that, that's that's the way the way it is now and you still consume lots of great stuff right so now on to today's book when we first spoke about this uh, podcast Akia I suggested we should speak maybe about 
a classic folk book. You know, we talked about Electric Eden by Rob Young. But then you bought something else you'd read recently and you were so enthusiastic about it that we changed our plans. And I'm really glad we did. Um, this is a book that only came out late last year by a young academic. You know, he's got a glittering CV behind him already. Degrees and fellowships at Oxford, Cambridge, York. He now lectures about popular music at the University of Leeds. I love his areas of expertise on the Leeds website. Um, they include digital media, minimalism, vaporwave, 1960s counterculture, and critically for our conversation today, folk and blues music. This is his first book, and it delves into an often sidelined element of the debates around folk song, the actual people that sang them um, and what they came to represent, um, especially to those people who were championing folk songs in the period of you know, rapidly changing um, industrialization in the US and the UK at the turn of the 20th century, as well as today in our modern world. So the book is The Folk by Ross Cole, and it was published in 2021 by the University of California Press. Tell us why you're so keen to talk about this book, Zakia, and not something else. Well, I'm sure you've experienced this, Jude, you know, the way that books can just sort of turn up in our laps um, just in a moment where we need them unexpectedly and you know they're, they're particularly resonant and as I as I think as I mentioned you know I'd sort of gone through a bit of a dry phase of struggling to really connect with books and my sort of my my former sort of voracious appetite for reading had sort of dwindled um, but I actually discovered this book um, when I was DJing in, in Porto. I went to an amazing uh, bookshop and record shop out there and discovered this this book uh, on the shelves. And it's got a beautiful cover. It's it's a black and white photo of these two older black men uh, in some sort of rural setting, although it's quite hard to see where they are. Uh, one of them is playing a, a violin and the other one's playing a guitar. And something about the image reminded me of photographs that I've seen um, that Alan Lomax took mm. in Karakou, where my grandparents are from, a small island off the coast of Grenada in the Caribbean, um, on his tour there in the 1960s. And I think it was just, it was initially the cover that drew me in. And then when I sort of read the blurb and had a little flick through, I realised um, that Ross Cole was voicing so many of the, the things that I'd been thinking about when I had been making the Albion series, thinking about, you know, the sort of the role of folk music and folk collectors, the some of the complexities and the stickiness around um, some of these ethnomusicological pursuits and journeys that various people have been on and how they sort of coalesce with ideas of uh, identity, race and nation. And it, it felt like it was sort of way more eloquent and academic uh, version of, of lots of thoughts that I'd had. Even though it is quite an academic book, I sort of read it in, in about you know, a few days, you know, I was sort of obsessed. And I, it had been so long since I'd had that feeling, I felt like, okay, well, this this would be the right one to talk about. It's a book that's sort of not priced as an academic price point. I don't know if you've, you know, tried to find academic stuff online, it's always very expensive because it's priced for libraries. Um, it's a bit um, cheaper. Um, it's also not the longest book ever. Um, and it's just so such confidence in its arguments. Um, let's go through some of them. Um, this book explores the political dimensions of a recurrent longing for folk culture, um, he says near the beginning. You know, so 
this longing, you know, that can be used to political ends. This longing can is about, you know, ideas of ourselves and who we could be. You know, obviously thinking about your radio series about Albion. What do you think about that longing he talks about? What's he trying to tell us in his book, in this book? Well, what I really like about the book is that it it's it complicates a lot of the the, the things that you know I had been searching for in my Albion. You know, the whole premise of the series initially was you know this lost spirit of Britain, or there's the, the, there is this sort of lost or forgotten version of Britain. Um, deep in the mists of time that I was going in search of and this idea of a kind of utopia before colonialism, before enslavement, a time uh, where the pagans, <laughs> you know, frolicked uh, among, the sto- among the stone circles and that somehow I was going to find that version of Britain through folk- through the sort of various folk traditions hmm. um, that, that remain and that would be a version of Britain that I would be able to connect to. And throughout the course of the series, it became evident that that place does not exist except in our fantasies and that became the realization that to find an alternative Britain is to sort of create one mm-hmm. and that there's an active uh, participation that has to happen for Albion to sort of um, emerge but what Ross Cole talks about in this book is the fact that various other uh, people such as Cecil Sharp whose legacy and work he explores in depth were also on a similar kind of quest or search for some kind of um, essential, pure, uncomplicated vision mm. of vision of our past, and that various other people in times of crisis, um, whether that's you know f- f- you know during the industrial revolution or in our current times, you know as as the United Kingdom sort of seemingly disintegrates, that we there is this kind of collective yearning mm. for a simple past, um, and that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that instinct, but but that it can sort of it can lead us into dangerous ways of looking um at, at the world and with Cecil Sharp being you know the one of the biggest British collectors of folk music you know going and listening to people singing um with Maud Carpley's and writing this music down you know, what's really interesting is I've um, spoken to Shirley Collins who went on um you know tour of the southern states of America with Alan Lomax uh, you know for this podcast and she was very interested in you know, preserving the working class roots of music and you know was very very happy when some of those songs were used by the Cohen brothers on the Your Brother Where Art Thou film and there was a penitentiary inmate James Carter who was given a check for you know twenty thousand dollars because he'd sung you know there is you know um it's interesting you know the, the people who collected some of them are you know with us they're still alive you know they were trying to you know, save some things, but obviously that is very complicated, very complicated. Um, let's talk about, you know, the period, um, you know, in the, he talks about in relation to Cecil Sharp, you know, the early 20th century, you know, everything is changing so rapidly. So that longing is enhanced, it's like a reaction against the modern world, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, a sense in which it kind of relates to the present moment and lots of people sort of, you know, taking a, there being a renewed interest in sort of folk tradition and folk culture at the moment is also a kind of a lack of mystery, a lack of mm-hmm. wonder uh, in a kind of hyper-rational um 
post-enlightenment technological world you know there are people who, who there's a sort of a longing for something that feels a bit deeper that roots us um to our to our deeper past um something that can that can sort of tell us about who we are on a kind in a kind of more fundamental sense and i think that that is kind of sharp's quest in a way um and and for him it's sort of against a backdrop of as you say uh rapid industrialization um and i think where it gets complicated i think um with with sharp is that he makes these distinctions between songs or traditions that that do speak to that essential pure mm. deep uh, you know fundamental uh part of english culture and those which he deems not to be you know and he's sort of imposing those judgments constantly on the communities that he encounters and um ross cole you know talks in depth about his sharp's disdain for popular music so you know and 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 also for music that actually spoke of um interconnection and fusion fusion mm. um sharp was very much looking for something pure a kind of pure english spirit and i think although that as as i sort of described that that longing for a kind of a connection to our deeper past a connection to our ancestors through these through this music through these traditions is not necessarily a sinister thing mm. it's this kind of um exclusionary and uh, a kind of ideology that's sort of also pinned around racial difference that is where yeah. maybe our quests deviate massively. <laughs> yes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, you know, Roscoe writes about how, you know, these songs can be used for, you know, far left-wing purposes, far right-wing purposes, you know, even bringing us up to how folk songs are used in the present day. Um, and in the preface, he gives two examples of the very different political ways in which songs can be used. Um 
you know, tell me about your relationship with, you know, folk songs, you know, growing up. Was Were they ever linked to politics or, you know, um, protest within your family? Or was it more, you know, your dad liked to play pentangle and you, <laughs> you liked singing along to, you know, pentangle songs? Yeah, I was never really aware of the that sort of political element of of folk, particularly yeah, as a as a teenager, like yeah, as I sort of explore in the Albion series, you know, my dad, as well as being really into jazz and reggae and you know Elvis and the Beatles and the rest of it, you know, he was also um, in a folk band and deeply into into folk music but always the sort of folk that was a bit on the jazzier side you know it was always that kind of you know pentangle obviously mm. um you know has that has that sort of syncopated element sometimes in jazz influences oh, yeah. um but I was never really aware of that political element and I guess it was really when I started exploring um the sort of folk traditions from my mum's side of the family from Karakou that I and and the sort of legacy of Alan Lomax who you know, in similarly to Sharp is a controversial figure. On the one hand, without him, um, so many of these incredible traditions that would, you know, were on the precipice of extinction um, might have been forgotten. And we, and you know, I certainly wouldn't have been able to sort of commune with my Karakuan ancestors mm-hmm. through the music in the way that I've been able to do thanks to his recordings. I sort of became aware of maybe some of the more political elements of folk through the sort of lens of colonialism and through the lens of thinking about the role of uh, these sort of anthropologists and, and ethnomusicologists and their sort of their intentions and the way that they could um, skew traditions and yeah so more on that kind of external politics or the politics that surround mm. the collection the preservation of the music as opposed to the sort of political intent of the songs themselves Collectors can act like editors, can't they? You know, kind of, we don't want that or we don't want that. You know, it's interesting that some of the more sexual songs or bawdy songs, you know, get um, shut out and it's the stuff that's about great pain or, you know, heartbreak or devastation that's kept in and not the fun, you know. <laughs> you know, the ruder things quite often get um, censored as well, he, t- he says. Um, I was also interested in how he talks about there's an idea that real songs, you know, emerge organically from some nameless elsewhere. <laughs> you know, um, these songs just, you know, um, you know, have been passed down through the ages in some sort of mystical fashion. Um, he talks about at the beginning, you know, some early Bob Dylan compositions and, you know, how they could have been folk songs, but they people knew that they weren't because they knew he'd written them and he had a record deal and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, you know, somebody who wrote a song in 1780 about X, you know, may have wanted to <laughs> their song to be released as a record and be listened to around the world. There's, but there's, there's this idea that people who pass on folk songs are, you know, these kind of gentle, pure spirits who are, you know, sort of fetishized in a way. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that because I know you're somebody who loves, you know, the magic of the passing down of songs as well as I do. You know, the magic of us sharing songs. Yeah, one of the things that I really found fascinating about the book is the way that he draws comparisons between um, people like Cecil Sharp and the sort of early anthropologists who were going out and encountering 
you know, people in the so-called new world or who, you know, people who are deemed to be exotic and the language that they use to describe them and their traditions, you know, this, this idea that, you know, so, so-called primitive people were kind of obsessed with rhythm as opposed to harmony and that their music was uh, kind of always about the body and about sort of, yeah, those sort of guttural, bodily, sexual instincts and, uh, or perhaps, you know, an expression of some former state of humanity pre-civilization and therefore that they're a kind of a study of them and their cultures would somehow uh you know provide a relief or a counterpoint Mm. to the, the present age but usually in the context of you know black and brown people and and that even extends to you know thinking about museum collections and you know the sort of objects and artifacts that we see so often are sort of they're kind of these exoticized, yeah. um, fetishized objects that belong to the other and some some kind of primitive other. And what's I suppose interesting about Sharp is that it's the same project, but it's happening within Britain. And yet still a lot of those ideas and those projections about a so-called purity or a you know a kind of pure and primitive expression. Um, are applied to white English people. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's very interesting to me in that there's a kind of connection with maybe uh, how some of the people in my Caribbean side of the family might have been looked at Mm. uh, previously. Um, But it it just shows that how much projection is involved in this ethnomusicological pursuit um, people's songs or their cultures are rarely uh, taken on and recorded without that lens mm. of um, superiority, without the music sort of being in service of some idea about humanity's progress in general. So yeah, it's, it is it is complicated. I guess once you start sort of looking at things through this prism, it is harder to sort of um, indulge in in the in the in that because you know I think. It, even as a listener, you know, when I listen to Pentangle, what I like about it is that it does so- somehow uh, take me back to some imagined, idealised past and to sort of have to critique that mm-hmm. and lose that. There's something, there's a shame in that. But I think it's so important that we, that we, that we are sort of critical about these, about these legacies and the way that, you know, the, the so-called folk have been sort of constructed uh, by people who often are very disconnected mm-hmm. from, from, from those people in the first place. Yeah, and as you say, the people who exist only as a symptom of the modern imagination. You know, a lot of the people, the folk, are not white. You know, that is, you know, the this idea of um, people being, you know, homogenized or you know, stripped of any agency or kind of individuality. You know, that comes across in some of the things that Ross Cole has been writing about. You know, it feels like um, quite a provocative book. You know, in, in, and I say that in a good way because it goes against. Um, a lot of writing about folk, which in some ways is quite surprising, you know, given we're in 2022 and, um, you know, these haven't been big debates before. You know, I have to say, you know, I write a folk column for The Guardian and it's I find it really hard <laughs> because, um, well, no, I don't find it really hard. I love doing it and I love um, writing about music that, um, you know, hopefully I I love introducing people to great records, but, you know, thinking about what folk is, you know, the folk column in The Guardian 20 years ago was probably something 
very different. You know, I've been a pains to include artists that, you know, aren't aren't British, <laughs> aren't white. You know, I've put in records from Eastern Europe. I've had, you know, interesting guitarists, um, you know, from all kinds of places, you know, using folk instruments, you know, but, um, you know, what is folk is such a hard question. You know, how would you define what folk music is? I guess what there is in common is a sense of a kind of a traditional stripped back, unpolished, unproduced uh, music that has been uh, passed down for generations orally um, in different communities around the world, and I think maybe that's the bro- that, that's the sort of broadest mm. way that I could I could begin to define what folk is to me. And obviously, then you can sort of zone in on those specific traditions and those specific uh, nuances um, of the folk music of each place. But as an overall, I think that's how I would describe it. I like to sort of sometimes in mixes if in mixes on my radio show to sort of position these disparate traditions alongside one another so that you know that you can start to hear what is common what is shared and start to hear the the resonances that transcend uh borders um there are still people collecting folk music today obviously you know i've spoken to you know sam lee who um has recorded a lot of traveling communities there's people like derek piotter in the u.s you know how do you think people should collect today yeah i mean i think some of the issues with uh this sort of legacy of of collectors is you know and and you know Alan Lomax has been criticized for this you know is that the people aren't named you know that we know the name of we know Alan Lomax we know who he is but we but all of the people that he recorded um rem, so many of them remain obscure and nameless and that there is um a kind of uh, an imbalance there in that these things are recorded as you say their music is sampled it finds its way into movie soundtracks it is dise- disseminated around the world and yet the communities um whom you know have been brewing and and preserving this music for generations um don't receive any of that sort of payback whether that's monetary or or even just to be named (laughs) um so I think that you know the act of collecting and preserving is not necessarily a bad thing and it can't always be people from the community necessarily who do that work of collecting folk songs but I think it's really really important that we sort of honor and venerate and as much as we can um sort of make sure that there's a fair exchange um, mm. when we're sort of going out and collecting collecting these things. You know, having read um, the Alan Lomax um, Land Where the Blues Began book recently, you know, there are lots of stories about lots of the people he speaks to, but of, yes, there will definitely be some people who will disappear in those narratives. Um, you know, I always think about when that Moby record came out in the late 90s and there are all these voices from the early 20th century from field recordings it just became samples and, you know, people didn't really think about where they'd come from um, and who these people even, you know, let alone who these people were. And, you know, that's what the, is at the the heart of Ross Cole's book, really, isn't it? You know, it's, um, you know, these people are just are ciphers in some some ways. Absolutely. And it is, you know, it is often, you know, to 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 go on that 
journey to to go on that quest of you know to go around the world and travel from place to place and uh, to have all the equipment to record you know is an incredibly privileged position I guess that's often the dynamic whether it's like Hugh Tracy going around uh going around you know Africa uh, or it's Alan Lomax going around the American South or Cecil Sharp uh you know exploring the the kind of working class uh, hamlets of, of the UK there is a kind of power imbalance there and I think that's that's sort of part of the problem um, that, as you say, that Ross Cole discusses in the book. And the, I don't know how how could you do that in a way that was that felt more equal. How could you do that in a way that didn't feel um, exploitative or uh, like there was some kind of form of extraction happening? It's a question that sort of ripples out in today, you know, to the present day with sort of projects where, you know, like Western electronic musicians, for example, go out to to somewhere in West Africa or in Latin America and they'll go and they'll work with this musician and, or, you know, local musicians and they might pay them a kind of one-off uh, fee mm. for their time and then they'll come back and release a record with these samples um in their house track or that you know their their major selling record and there's a sort of um uneasiness i think up to this day about the kind of colonial mm. kind of echoes of that transaction and of that of that project so it's something that i still think we're we're trying to figure out of you know how to do that in a way that feels fair and that kind of acknowledges the the power imbalance and i I'm, I'm not sure what what that is it kind of it just goes into these questions of appropriation and that we're still really trying to figure out at the moment so i think ross cole's book in looking at you know cecil sharp and these sort of these examples from from our past are still very resonant today even thinking about contemporary mm. and popular music yeah that's a great reason to read it now isn't it it does make you think about how we look to you know other cultures outside the ones that we may have grown up in or experienced as listeners and how we think about them how we treat them how we respect them um and yeah Ross Cole is somebody who has written about other genres with this in mind and yeah it'd be great to see you know him uh writing more big books on this subject. Um, thanks so much, Zaki, for sharing the folk with me, um, published by the University of California Press. End of last year, so this is, a, you know, kind of a, a, a pretty new book. I'm, I'm loving that we're including um, new books like this. Now, to finish the podcast, I'd love a few more recommendations from you. Firstly, are there any other songbooks that you want to mention today to us that you think are worth buying, borrowing, reading? Well, yeah, as as you know, when we were first thinking about the the right book for the podcast, I also suggested um, a book called Blues People by Amiri Bereka, who was at the time of publication known as Leroy Jones. And um, it's a book in a way that is a kind of a nice counterpoint or accompanying piece to to Ross Cole's book um, in that it's an exploration of African-American musical expression from the sort of spirituals and, and, and field songs and work songs of enslaved Africans um, in, in, the, in the early Americas through 
blues to jazz and various other uh, stops along the way. It's interesting because obviously it's written from the perspective of an African-American writer. It's not this sort of sense of someone going to some far-flung place across the globe to examine an exotic tradition, but it's still complicated. And, you know, Amiri um, Baraka was criticised for the fact that he was quite, you know, a middle-class black man whose experience was very, uh, you know, distant from the folk that he was sort of imagining in his book. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting and particularly for anyone who's a fan of of, of jazz and, and of the blues it's a really fascinating kind of look at at the sort of sociological underpinnings of that music as well as the a lovely look at the music itself so I would recommend. I think it's been long out of print in the UK but um, I believe it's being reprinted um, by a, um, it's been picked up to be reissued by a publisher later this year um, that's what I'm hearing. And finally, uh, given that music is the, obviously the you know beating heart, soul, etc. of this podcast, we'd like you to recommend a book song for us. This is a song that you love inspired by a work of literature. We've had so many people take this in different ways. I'm interested to see how you're going to take it. I mean, you know, what came to mind was a sort of um, a song by Thomas Dolby called Dissidence, oh, which nice. has a line in it from Of Mice and Men, which is forever like inscribed in my memory from having to study it at GCSE. <laughs> <laughs> I love Thomas Dolby. He's great. I'm very happy to have him on the list. Um, thank you so much for being on Songbook with us today, Zakia. You know, where are you off to next? Have you got more uh, travels to come this summer after your wisdom tooth has uh, calmed down? No, I'm, I'm kind of, well, maybe a little bit f- further towards the end of the summer but I'm actually just really enjoying being being home at the moment and um and sort of having nice time to do things like reading and listening to lots of lovely music so yeah I'm, I'm quite quite happy to be to be in one place for a little while thank you so much for listening to songbook you can find links to the books mentioned in this episode as well as our spotify playlist in the episode description Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>